another episode of Relative Pitch. We are ecstatic, excited, thrilled to have Kedrick Armstrong with us today, just a conductor, um, amongst many other things. <laughs> That's a 3.2 oh again. I, uh, <laughs> Kedrick, oh my gosh, it is so amazing to have you with us today. How are you? I'm doing good. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so much looking forward to this. This is going to be fun. I can tell already. <laughs> <laughs> We've already cutting up before the camera turns. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> well, Kedrick, we, we know that you are, you know, very known for your conducting, but just tell us a little bit more about what you do, who you are. Yeah, so Kedrick Armstrong, I am from Georgetown, South Carolina, in the good old low country. Um, I currently work, my title is uh, creative partner and principal conductor of the Knox Galesburg Symphony in uh, Galesburg, Illinois, which is uh, what I do part time. And then the rest of my time right now, I just kind of work as a freelance conductor and uh, collaborator and cultivator, as my tagline says, and freelancing with a lot of different organizations, both in opera and in the orchestral field. And yeah, just being grateful for a life in music. I mean, that is, that was the dream and that's what we're doing. So <laughs> I love it because, you know, sometimes I think like, I don't think I really realized when I saw a conductor as, you know, growing up, like that they did other things. I just thought they were only here for this orchestra or this opera, what this, you know, symphony. And so talk to us a little bit about really for a conductor, like you do have your principal position, but you're also doing all these other, you know, people don't really, I guess, think about conductors as being freelancers in, in the same sense of like musicians being freelancers. Can you speak to the balance of that? Yeah. So, you know, I think for me, I so I just finished uh, this past summer a master's degree at University of Colorado Boulder in orchestral conducting. Um, and so this is sort of my like first time out into the wild as a freelance conductor. Um, and it's really, you know, it's a lot of contract based work. And so for uh, the orchestras that I worked with, it's usually like you're in for a week, you you know, you do three or four rehearsals, you do a show, and then you're like out of there. Uh, for opera companies, it's usually a little bit longer, you know, depending on the length of the production, you know, anywhere from two weeks to two months, you could be in a location kind of working on a show. Um, and then, you know, luckily, I have, you know, sort of a a home base, you know, that is both South Carolina, which is where I live right now, but also Galesburg, which is, you know, an organization that I have the privilege of having a longer relationship with and being able to return multiple times and and sort of having the ability to build my own programming and, you know, run auditions and do all of that stuff. So, yeah, I think a lot of conductors who are like just getting started out before, you know, you're Gustavo Dudamel or, you know, Jonathan Hayward, you know, you, you're you're sort of just building it. You're sort of kind of picking up the gigs as they come and whoever will be brave enough to let you conduct their ensemble, you kind of say yes <laughs> and don't look back. <laughs> um, You know, that's so interesting of just the world of conducting because you are in the orchestral track right now and I'm in the wind band track and it, it, it's like separate because the wind band is, you know, I think more tied to the education 
side of things and orchestral is more like the contracts, you know, I'm here a week and I'm flying out. I might be across the waters in some foreign country, you know, <laughs> two weeks from now. So what led you to choose going the orchestral route and and maybe explain to some listeners who, you know, this could be a viable option for them, the road to how you got here? Yeah, you know, for me, choosing orchestral conducting was kind of just like natural. So I grew up, uh, my first instrument was piano. I grew up as a church musician. I played, you know, church piano by ear, Baptist church, yes. back was in South Carolina. Um, but I hated practicing piano. Like it was not like, you know, I just wanted to show up and jam and like go home. Like was, yeah. that was my MO. And I chose clarinet. I was a clarinet player and clarinet was what I, you know, studied from middle school up until undergrad. And so that kind of naturally led me into the orchestral world. And I, you know, I was always interested by the the mass of instruments. Uh, when I, where I was growing up, we didn't have string programs in our schools. You know, it was like you had a band <laughs> and our district had a string program. So I was lucky enough to be a part of that, that met on Saturday mornings and, you know, learned cello and violin. And so by that point I was like, oh, there, like there's these string instruments and these wind instruments and like people be putting them together. And like, you know, by the time I got to be introduced to an orchestra, I was, I was hooked, you know, I was, that that group of musicians together and how flexible it was you know it was it's in you know r&b and rap music it's in tv music it's like in every facet of life the orchestra started to show up and so that's that's kind of how i chose that that lifestyle wow and then so um what were some of your your routes, uh, you know, coming from South Carolina and now to, you know, conducting across the country? What was that road like? You know, <laughs> it was chaotic. You know, I I think we all as musicians and we're all, you know, in school and we, we know what these ladders are and these sort of systematic ladders that are built in. I mean, in any career, in any field, you know, these are the things that you do and the routes that you take in order to to get somewhere, but, you know, as a black queer Christian orchestra musician from South Carolina, like the, the ladder was always this mystery to me because no one at the top of the ladder looked like me. So I was like, I don't really understand how this is going to work. Um, I ended up going to a residential public high school called the South Carolina Governor's School for the Arts and Humanities, which is here in South Carolina. Um, so I like when I was 15, I moved out and went to live with like these 200 other high schoolers who are artists. And that was like the the time in my life where music as, you know, classical music as an, an art form and career option really opened for me. Um, and by that time, I knew I wanted to be a conductor, you know, which was very young. Like I I formed my first like chamber orchestra in high school, you know, <laughs> and we like <laughs> did these rehearsals and, and, you know, I was arranging music. And so, you know, for me, it was, it was, it was always music and, you know, governor's school led to me going to Wheaton College, which is where I did my undergrad in music history, because by that point, I knew that I did not want to be a performance major. 
Um, I had horrible and still have horrible performance anxiety. And so like the idea of playing in master classes and playing recitals was like, why would I like throw myself into the fire? <laughs> like, why, why do I, why, why would I do that? So for four years of that, after doing it so intensely in high school for three years was unimaginable, but I, I was a nerd. I loved scores. I loved uh, I love the research. I love rehearsals. Like I would rather be in rehearsal all day than do a show. Um, and so music history undergrad, I took five years off in between undergrad and did my, you know, just finished grad school. And so, yeah, I, it was, you know, kind of all over the place for me in, in, or choosing and becoming an orchestral conductor, but it was always, making music in that way you know that collaborative form of making music was always the goal yeah it's so funny just something quickly because i resonated with this part uh the performance anxiety of facing the audience versus not facing the audience because like me as a conductor i would i love being in front of that now you put an instrument or you tell me to sing in front of these people i'm not doing it like that's (laughs) I, no, no, thank you. I will leave that to Lauren and Michael. <laughs> you know, they can be on the stage all they want to. But for me, my back will be to the audience. And and I'm very comfortable, very comfortable. Absolutely. Um, To go off of what Anthony <clears throat> was just saying, I love, like, love being in front of an ensemble next to the conductor. Like, I'm literally about to go do it in 45 minutes. Um, and it's just like one of my favorite things to do, um, cause it's a different kind of collaboration, but you can ask Anthony, cause I had my, let's call it first in conducting engagement this year yeah. where, and Anthony, what did you hear the entire time while I was conducting? What did I hear? Oh, you always, you're always blowing air. Like you're, <laughs> you're never, you're never done playing the trumpet. I literally I catch myself doing it all the time when I'm coaching sectionals and when I'm conducting, I'm like, well, mm-hmm. yes, I can't do this no more. I need to sit down and put a trumpet in my hand. What's crazy so. is like in in like classes, like in undergrad, you know, Michael would be sitting there and he would be dissociating God God knows what doing what. And you just hear and it was so loud. And I'm like, Michael, shut up. Well, not only in classes, he, he will do this at a symphony orchestra concert. Like no. we we could be at your concert watching you conduct an orchestra. And if it's a song Michael No, Michael will be sitting there blowing air as if he's playing the trumpet. So loud. And like I don't know if he really realized like people can hear this. So you will see me and Laura like hit him, like, shut up. <laughs> shut up. But all the funniness leads to this. So what in like what goes on in your head from taking the clarinet and having the performance anxiety to putting a stick in your hand, not facing the ensemble and you find yourself at home? So what how did that come about? Or is there still a little bit of performance anxiety you go through, but it's more comforting knowing you have like the team in front of you to do the thing? Yeah, you know, yeah, I will say, yeah, it's not like, you know, clarinet is 
performance anxiety and in the conducting is not like you know i i'm the first to admit like i'm an anxious human being like i i'm just going to be anxious um yeah. but for me there was it's it's the collaboration that comes with being a conductor you know i ever since the beginning you know a quick very quick story i'll tell like my first experience kind of leading a group of human beings in music was in fifth grade um i was i knew that our fifth grade class had to sing a song for our fifth grade commencement and so i got my mom and we rewrote a celine dion song that i proceeded to teach the rest of the fifth graders during fifth grade music class and i sat at the piano at our fifth grade commencement and led our class in the okay. celine dion rewrite so for me it was like it was always the collaboration of putting the thing together yeah. that I loved you know I like even when I was a clarinet player like chamber music was my favorite thing to do as a clarinet player versus you know solo or recital rep um and so for me as a conductor like when I'm standing up there now there's this level of trust that you just kind of have to have and that I love living into like I love being in conducting situations where I very much know like I'm not needed like they don't need me here like these are phenomenal musicians right. you know we've rehearsed you know well you know it's it's together like they can do this without me and my job here is as an instigator as a collaborator as you know an agitator more so than you know the performance rests or hangs on my ability to blow air through my instrument <laughs> you know like that, like that to me is it's it's a very different psychological journey and you know I think that speaks to the personality type of you know a lot of the conductors that I know like they just they we tend to exist so much better at that like be in the rehearsal room put it together at least yeah. like you know the the good conductors the, the I, I, knew, I knew someone about that. I knew that line was going to sneak its way in there somehow. And the way it, I said, and the taper is going to be good conductors. And, <laughs> um, and you know, you're so you're so right because for me, I've always said like I always love a group setting. Like th that was always my thing. Um, you know, I would say my favorite musical artist is Destiny's Child. I'm, of course, I'm a Beyonce stan, and you know, I'm part of the Beehive. However, it is something about when those girls come together and create art. That, to me, as at a young age, always made it like, oh my God, look what they're doing. And same thing being a conductor. It's about the collaborative efforts of everyone. Um, of It's not just me, it's not just you, but we come together and we just make beautiful art. I think that's what's really most important. Um, now, for you as being, as you said, a, a Black queer conductor, how has that journey been for you to continue to create great art, but also realize your Blackness, your queerness in, in a field where it's not so celebrated um, as we would like it to be? Yeah, you know, I think that's like such an important question um, now, especially for me. And, you know, I'll be very honest, it, it was a journey. It was <laughs> it was a journey, you know, growing up in, like I said, in South Carolina without, you know, really great representation, but also in an environment that 
very much painted classical music as like this as a white thing like it's like it's white people music you know and so growing up even there was this tension of like you know be a gospel musician you know do what your people want be a classical musician you know do this other thing that your people really don't do yeah. and so for a long time like it was uh you know it was kind of this assimilation game that so many of us have to play in order to survive these spaces you know i knew that i wanted to be an orchestral conductor i knew i wanted to conduct at you know really high levels and i had a lot of fear about being pigeonholed into only doing black things if I were to ever become successful. And so I like dug hard into the the canon, you know, in those early years of my life. And when I said dug hard, I mean obsessed. Every Beethoven symphony, every Mahler symphony, every like all of the repertoire I knew and I could recite backwards because I like wanted to be able to prove my worth in as a black man in the field. And it wasn't until, you know, I did a conducting fellowship with Chicago Sinfonietta that was really pivotal in my life in that they were the first organization to really like take me by my neck and say like, you're a black man on the podium and that's your power. Like that is, that is what makes you special. That is what makes you unique. Like that is your voice. And to not live into that voice is not only a disservice to you, but a disservice to your audiences and to your ensemble and to the world. And so in 2019, 18, 20, like in those years, I had to do this entire overhaul of like my entire musical education, you know, where I had never been really taught about Black composers or Black conductors. You know, by the time I was in graduated college, I had never played, you know, a piece by a Black composer in an orchestra. Like that was just like not something that was in my, you know, worldview. And, and so I had to go back and, and, and dig. And that's kind of what led me to my master's degree was, you know, doing research specifically on Black musicians and Black artists and Black composers and, and reclaiming that narrative for myself, for our field, you know, and also, you know, for our ancestors so that I can come back home and, and be like, no, Black classical music is not a, a white people, like, there are people of color like all over classical music for generations and that has just not been taught like it's literally been you know erased and hidden and gatekept and swept to the side for so long to create this narrative and so i feel so much more responsibility in being proudly a black queer conductor now than i did when i was younger but i mean that's that's life that's growth that's maturing that's you know that's being an artist Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I that makes so much sense because it, it's true like especially when you were growing up like and wanting to be taken seriously like what it what is a serious classical musician you had to especially as a conductor the Mahlers the Beethovens like all of the you absolutely must have right and I don't think what often enough what people talk about is that time frame where you that pivotal point with Chicago Symphony that you were talking about of going oh my gosh, this is the first space that I'm in that my ensemble in your instance, like is saying, hey, you're black. <laughs> lean into that, <laughs> you know, like lean Like that part. <laughs> not like you're black in the way that, you know, it's like labeling and to say, telling us what we should be and all those things that we often do face. But it's like, 
there is power there and there is beauty there and i love that you 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 talked about it because it's something that does happen and i think the difference is like now students who are growing up now don't if they wanted to not go through that if they wanted to immediately be like i want to start off and i'm playing black music specifically or i'm playing music from my people's culture specifically you could do that. There are avenues, there are professors at high conservatories, universities who will take those students in and they want them. They're actually seeking them out. And that is the difference, <laughs> right? That is a huge difference. <laughs> Mind blowing. <laughs> and I mean, like that for me, it goes to show like what is possible. And I like we, you know, there's, I think every day as an artist, as a classical musician, as a human on this earth, like you go through this dichotomy of like, you know, fighting for change, like being the change you wanna see. And then also being confronted with just how, for lack of better words, like idiotic <laughs> our field can be sometimes. Um, but there are these moments where I think about, you know, I, like I just finished a master's degree where, you know, I watch these kids, you know, have these opportunities and like there's funding now for like students performing music by black opposers where like when i like i graduated in 2016 when i was in my undergrad like this was not like we weren't there and so even to be able to see you know just in that short amount of time how far like we have come is very encouraging but i'm always you know with that same breath like I just left a master's program. And so I'm like, I know what it's like and I know what it can be like behind the performative, like, okay, so we did the pieces and we put your, you know, William Grant still is now taught in theory. And, you know, so bye-bye. Like that's, that's, we, we did it. <laughs> so I'm always like pushing for more because yeah. there is so much there. Yeah. Well, especially, and I'm sorry, Anthony. Um, especially like, um, you're like, you love rehearsal. We all love rehearsal. We all love performances. But when you see these pieces, like a William Grant Steele, Florence Price, but then you see the rehearsal breakdown and you see which ones get the least amount of time, but then some miraculously there's a cello concerto on there that gets almost as much time as like Dvorak nine. But why is my Florence Price, William Grant Steele, Carlos Simon, why are they not getting my time? Why are we not digging into this repertoire? Like we should be. And that's where like the next, I think <clears throat> next step of um, uh, equality and all this other thing comes into play is like equality of rehearsal time and equity of rehearsal time. And like, okay, I've been on gigs and I know I'm new to this whole orchestra thing. I'm not a, I'm not an orchestra girly. Um, that's not me. That's not my bag. But like, I remember doing a pops gig for December and then I was like, okay, are we going to play this sleigh ride? They're like, oh no, we'll just perform it on the gig. I'm like, heard heard um or stars and stripes i recently did i'm like okay can we do this because you know i didn't practice my finger in a little bit and like oh what'd you do it on a gig i was like heard so i've like being in behind the scenes knowing like okay we really just throw some of these pieces off and we actually work on these other pieces i'm like okay so when is the equity and equality of rehearsal time and how much we dig into each piece gonna come into effect now that we've added the repertoire when are we going to respect the repertoire mm. mm -hmm. and actually something that i've been noticing with that on like is exactly that is you know symphony musicians especially the ones who've been in the game for decades had got, gotten, have gotten used to a certain repertoire 
and they know, right? They see it and they go, great, I don't really have to practice this or I just have to dust off this one part. Now, though, that they're at, we're adding a new repertoire, repertoire that maybe isn't new, but new to them, right? By more diverse composers. This is where there's a lot of tension that I've been seeing, like where it's like, well, we didn't, we didn't like how it was, but it's like, well, you only rehearsed it for 20 minutes but you rehearse the Dvorak for like an hour. So do you realize that maybe if you would have actually spent more time in rehearsal, pri like private practicing on your own, that maybe you would have liked it more. Maybe the audience also would have liked it more if you would have played it correctly, you know? And so that's, that's what I hate the most is when there's a disservice done to new works and to works by like composers who are out, outside of the, the traditional canon and they're treated immediately like something different. It, they're othered immediately. Everyone's like, I don't like it. It's different. I have to actually practice <laughs> to do this, which is a whole other problematic thing with with the structure of symphony orchestras in this country specifically. Um, but I have seen that. I have seen, and I wonder like for you as being the person on the podium, when you are working and you're doing rehearsals and you have to balance it with like, we're doing the war horse, you know, all the war horses, you know, the things that everyone knows and loves. And then we have this new thing. How do you, I mean, what's your process like to really introduce that piece or pieces to your your players for them to really actually engage in it and buy into it? So it's a great experience for them, but also the audience. Yeah, you know, I think this is like such, such a responsibility on American conductors now and something that's like, grossly like not taught <laughs> it's like this is like the one of the biggest responsibilities of a, I feel like of American doctors across the board but something that you know we just are expected to know when we write our diversity statement for our job applications um but it, you know this I really try to you know believe this philosophy if I practice what I preach you know like if I am this person that is gung-ho about new music and about music from diverse composers at every opportunity that I have, I'm a programmer, you know, <laughs> like <laughs> I, I'm, I'm in some situations now where like I'm guest conducting and people are asking for my programming and it's like, I'm a stand down, like we gonna do what, like pick one of them. Like we gonna program something. Like I'm not doing this program that's just like all dead white guys like we like it's 2000 we are way beyond that there shouldn't even be a conversation point now and the fact that for some organizations if i have to even bring it up like i'm like we need to reconsider like what you have on your website about diversity equity inclusion because it, it shouldn't be this like oh well we did it in february and so we you know we did it like how do I make this a part of our everyday experience? And then for me, like you said, in rehearsals, I have to try to like figure out how to, you know, economically make that happen. You know, I'm doing a program in a couple of months that's, you know, Sostakovich 5 and a new work by Carlo Simon. And like, you know, it can be so easy for me and for a musician to be like, oh my gosh, Sostakovich 5, like, it's, I gotta, you've got, we gotta get this thing. They play this. They notice. And, and, you know, and it's like, this is where I think like ego is, it, you cannot have an ego about being a conductor. It cannot be about you and your interpretation and, and your relationship. With, like it has to be about best serving, you know, the composers and the people in front of you. I know they know Shostakovich. I know the Carlos Simon is a new piece. 
I don't care how well I want the Shostakovich to go. I know that I have to give Carlos Simon's new work like a lot of time and a lot of time being like uncomfortably more time than this organization would think that we should be spending on this piece for like, but it's that that's what's necessary. And that's the kind of space that I want to give living composers of color, because that's the experience that has been stolen for so many of them, you know, for so many generations before. And so I, I like, it's really important to do that. And for me, I just model it. Like, I'm like, if I do it, like, usually when I'm asked for a rehearsal schedule, there's no musicians committee is at, like, I just put it out there and I'm like, and I just have to live into it in the rehearsal. Like it has to be a strategic and well-organized thing. And they have to trust that I have a reason for what I'm, for why I'm, I'm doing that. Thanks. Yeah. Something that you just said um, in the middle of, of your statement about the di uh, dichotomy of you send your program to some of these organizations that on their website has strong diversity statements, DEI statements. Written by Grammarly. But, <laughs> but however, you being on like the flip side of that and kind of seeing the behind the scenes, you're getting a little pushback of like, well, we've already done our black pieces already. What has that been like uh, uh, seeing that and, and hearing that for places that specifically say, oh, we are DEI positive? But the question is, are you? You know, I think this goes back to something Lauren was saying earlier of just like, I mean, for lack of better words, and I really don't like this word, but for lack of better words, laziness, like just the laziness that is inherently a part of some of these systems and the fact that people have been allowed to become lazy. Usually when I met with that, and I mean, like this has been from professional orchestras. I dealt with this, you know, in, in collegiate settings of just like, even when they want to do pieces by black composers, pieces by diverse composers, like it's either, oh, we've already done that. We don't want to, you know, do that anymore. Or like, that's too hard. Or like, no one really knows what that is. Like we can't, we can't sell tickets with, you know, th that. Uh, or like it's too it's too weird. It's too unfamiliar because like something that, you know, a huge part of my master's research was Black modernism and examining Black modernism in composers of the 20th century and saying like, hey, there were Black composers out here who are Black composers, but they weren't writing influenced by jazz or influenced by the spiritual. Like, you know, like there's this this diaspora of Black people writing classical music that ranges everything from William Grant Still, you know, to Julia Perry, who sounds like, you know, Hindemith or Stravinsky. Like, it's, the gambit is wide. And a lot of that even comes from, like, they're comfortable with William Grant Still and Florence Price. Yeah. Like that, they will rock with. But if it gets a little too musically out there, if it has a little bit too, you know, Julius Eastman, if it's a little bit too politically concerning, like we just won't even mess with it. And, you know, I, I am always, I just try to push back. I just try to find ways to insert and, and find my audience. You know, I, I am, I am never going to push something down an organization's throat that they don't want to do because that doesn't serve anybody. Um, but what we are going to do is find something to program. <laughs> you know, we're not getting out of this. Like there's, okay. there is, there is 
as much breath as there is in your community that you're trying to serve, there is that same breath in diverse composers. So we can find, we right. can find something. <laughs> We're going to find something. And that's like, I, and that's like the same thing. I'm like trying to take a little, like part of my um, artistic thing. I'm trying to take a little uh, jab at is the, like uh, breaking down the walls of like composers like Stockhausen. And those kind of composers, like, I love that. I love it. I can, like, listen to it two hours, and I'm here for it. Oh, my God. And y'all, I'm not lying. You're not lying. That is exactly what his music sounds like. Exactly. And I love it. I'm here for it. Like we're gonna we're gonna Millie Rock to it later. But uh, anyways, I'm trying to find new composers now <clears throat> that will take aspects of that, but break it down for like a middle school audience. Mm. So instead of doing like a 12-tone row, let's just do um minor and let's go into a little whole tone and back into minor, something they can be familiar with. Hey, this is sad. This is gonna sound a little odd, and this is sad again. Like breaking down this upper echelon. Big quotations here. Upper echelon, high music, and breaking it down to middle schoolers and high schoolers that, no offense, I love band, first of all, love band, but we only play in flat keys. So our ear is not used to other keys and other modes. So, like, how can we break that down? So when they hit college, you can be like, hey, I want you to play this 12-tone row etude. Huh? And this kind of thing. So like, and then in your point to it is like, hey, I know you're not going to play this music. This is the compromise we're going to play. But hey, here's these list of composers. That's not William Grant, Seal, and Florence Price. That's also not Julius Eastman. And that bam, we're going to find somebody because I'm not, this stick ain't waving until we have some pieces that I want to conduct. Well, also what you brought up about Black artists specifically, I'm speaking as, uh, about Black composers, being put into a, a certain box of their music being either jazz influence or spiritual influence, as if that is the only Black experience of all of us. And, that, and that's just not true. So I am I'm very thankful that you your research um, has went into that and you're also programming music to represent that a contrary to popular white beliefs no shade that all black people are not the same we are not that's a news flash maybe to some that are listening <laughs> but that is true we are not and um i, I will always remember um william dr william lake uh said this <laughs> Um, to, I think it was either Kevin Day or Katash Copley, one of them. Um, and he said, don't let these people put your music into a box. You can talk about Black Boy Joy. It doesn't always have to be about some, you know, uh, the Birmingham bombing in 1963 or, or the Amy Church in, in, um, in Charleston. It does not always have to be around strife and hard times. Black people have joy as well. And your music can reflect that too. And that really spoke to me. Not even, I'm not a composer. However, I am a conductor. And I think conducting uh, part of our job is being curators of almost like an art show. And so when I'm thinking of music, I don't want that to be the only experience because our audience members are going to take that and say, well, 
this music is always going to be somewhere a variation of this. And that isn't true. So I'm just glad that you, when you're doing your program, you take some of those other artists that have been overlooked through history and say, well, we're going to shed some light on that too. Absolutely. You know, one of my my biggest things that has always been, you know, part of my artistic sort of mantra is, you know, the responsibility of both comforting and challenging an audience, like, you know, my, of, of art, like it's, it's always been this both and this double-edged sword. And, you know, in my own work of, you know, trying to bring these voices to the music, I'm also like, I'm not just going to do that. You know, like I, I like to tell people that my programming is like, everything from Monteverdi to Montgomery, like it's gonna be <laughs> like what I like. And I like, I'm gonna sit down at the hopsichord and jam out to some early music. I'm gonna conduct Stockhausen. I'm gonna do, you know, just, I'm just gonna like, I love music. And as an artist, as a conductor, like all I want is for my audiences and my musicians is to love it as much as I love it. And that is our responsibility to just, put it out there and to to do that justly and equitably and and responsibly and in a way that truly reflects and serves your community and i truly believe if like all arts organizations like actually took that to heart and actually like you know put that at the source of what they do and like really looked at the community and really made everything they do a reflection of the people that they serve like I, we would we would be in a much different place <laughs> Mm -hmm. I that was <clears throat> resounding resonant everything and I'm just like immediately look at Lauren because Lauren's loves community engagement loves that kind of thing and like I'm thinking about it like now sitting in an orchestra and then also sitting just in music in general and fighting for our place in society still our place in younger people's lives um and just like why don't we really take we have these resources a lot of major orchestras have plenty of resources take a look at the communities you serve the communities you don't get enough of in your halls and find a way to reach them and find like truly find a way to reach them not like oh okay so if i'm going like if we're in georgia and i'm going to venture down below atlanta let me play this kind of music. Or if I'm going to venture above Atlanta, let me play this kind of music. But in Atlanta, I'm home so I can play this kind of No, like you need to really look at your repertoire selection through the whole year and make sure there's something at every month, at least, that they can find a reason to come to. Like band directors can find a reason to bring their kids to your organization. Um, I know at Chattanooga, we're doing this new series. It's not one of our masterworks yet, but it's uh, pay what you can pay. Like you could pay a dollar. 50 cents and come hear a concert that day. Or you could pay the normal ticket price. I'm like, okay, that's a way we can serve certain communities. So now let's start looking at the programming in which we do that one. Because if we can get them in the door with this thing, we can offer some other things down the road. We don't have to do a Gershwin Pops concert or a Frank Sinatra Pops concert. Or, you know what I mean? Like the plethora of pops on Tom Pops. Like we can do other music that engages every community around us, but we have to be smart about it. And we have to actually put forth the effort and um, thought provoking things. Put forth the effort. See, that's that. <laughs> A lot on that part. <laughs> <laughs> 
Like what I see within like, cause that's exactly what I would do with the symphony is I find ways to be out more in the community to see what's going on, to meet with artists, to meet with, to be, you know, in different youth programs and just seeing what's going on and what are the needs. Cause another thing that I really hate is when organizations come into communities and tell them what they need and tell them what they should be, what they should enjoy, what they should desire. And my biggest question is always like, well, why, why should they want you in their community? Why should they want you here? Why should they take their money and their resources from their communities and put it into your organization? Like that's, I always start with the why. Like, why are we doing this? Why are we engaging with these groups? And like, for me, especially being like a black woman, I know that I have some, especially in certain spaces, people are, they want to, they want to be welcoming and it's amazing for me. But then I also represent an organization that I'm like, I have to make sure that I'm doing my part to like not allow this organization that I am a part of to just come in just because their guards are down because they see me walk into the room and they're like, oh my gosh, it's Lauren. I'm like, it is Lauren, but, but let's make sure we get you set first. Like before we, you know, before I introduce any of this stuff, because that's yep. a, the biggest thing about those, these kinds of roles, because they're popping up everywhere. There's community engagement coordinators, com community relations managers popping up for all different organizations in the arts, finance, tech, everything. And there is a responsibility with that too, to be like, don't just play into what they want you to be. Like, I want to make sure that I'm doing it for the right reasons and that it is actually helping the communities that I, I'm serving. Because that's what I'm doing in this work, in this role that I'm doing. I want to serve the communities. And that's a huge, it's, it's, I have, it's a lot of reflection that I have to do with every single partnership and opportunity that I have, every single conversation I have to be like, okay, we did do this, but let me make sure I go back and say, hey, like, if you're not comfortable with this or you, you know, all these different things you have to think about. But also the idea of like, when you do get to go do performances in those communities, are they drastically different from what you're doing at your home venue? Because that is a huge thing that happens is like your community concerts don't look anything like your actual like, you know, subscription masterwork series. And that says something, whether or not you think it does or not, that says something to not only the musicians, but the community. When you say this is a free concert, this is one you pay for, you know? So I don't know, it's, it's a lot I've been learning and noticing and things that I really try to bring into the perspective, which is another thing that I do is like, I take the perspectives that I learn from out there and I bring it back in and saying, this is how you're being perceived. Change it, <laughs> change it or die. Like. <laughs> and there it is <laughs> it's just the truth and like i i mean for me i'm so grateful to have you and so many other amazing like artists who are out in the community doing the work now because it's 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 about the representation of who you are but also you are intentionally doing this kind of work you're intentionally bringing about this kind of change that you want to see you're reflecting all the time, you're shifting, you're changing, we're growing, we're evolving, and you're taking that with you everywhere you go. And that's inspirational. And I hope that if there are people listening to this who are, who maybe you feel the same way, you're like, I was on this track and now I'm realizing that I didn't have a lot of, like, I didn't put a lot of my identity into what I was doing. And I'll, like, make this the moment where you go, I can do it. Like, take a moment to really realize it is possible. We're seeing it, right? We want to keep pushing it forward, but like 
at the same time, like you can do it now. It can start with something very small and then it can change over time. So um, Kedrick, thank you so, so, so much for sharing your wisdom, your experience, your knowledge with us. I mean, I already knew this was going to be a hoot, but like, I didn't, <laughs> like, it just, thank you, truly. <laughs> Uh, thank you all so much for having me and I mean for giving space uh, for us that are out here in the world trying to do the work. I mean, I really, this has been healing. I very much appreciate it. Absolutely. Well, where can we, what are you, what's happening next? Where can we find you? What are your next engagements? Uh, I am traveling back uh, to Galesburg next. We have our Christmas Baroque concert that we're doing at the beginning of December. Um, and then I'm heading to Atlanta to workshop an opera at the Atlanta Opera for a couple of days. Um, and then Chicago at the beginning of the new year. So you can find out all of that and everything else on my website, um, KedrickArmstrong.com. I think that's that's what it is. <laughs> well, um, everyone, make sure to go check out um, Kedrick's website and try to find him <laughs> if he pops up into your city sometime soon. Um, and we'll see you next week on Relative Pitch. Bye, everyone. <laughs> see you later.